There's an old joke that takes place during World War I at a U.S. military outpost in Europe. And a sentinel sees a man approaching the outpost, and he says, Who goes there? The man says, It's okay, I'm an American soldier. The sentinel says, Well, then prove it by reciting the first verse of the Star-Spangled Banner. The soldier says, Um, I can't remember it. And the sentinel says, Okay, then, pass, American. So it's a wry observation, really, about just how few Americans know the words to even one verse of the Star-Spangled Banner. And there's actually much, much more about this extraordinary anthem that is unknown to many people in the U.S. and even more so outside of the country, including why this song, of all possible patriotic songs, became America's national anthem. In a couple of days, September 14th, we will reach the 205th anniversary of the writing of the Star-Spangled Banner. So on today's episode of The Sun Also Rises, here on KPCG-FM, we will shine the spotlight and maybe some of the rocket's red glare on the Star-Spangled Banner. And we'll examine the extraordinary story of America's national anthem. I love the Star-Spangled Banner. I'm a banner booster. It's got gravitas. It's got a long history. But Yankee Doodle should be our anthem. That's Mark Ferris, who studied history at the University of Massachusetts at Amherst. And he's the author of a riveting and beautifully written book called Star-Spangled Banner, The Unlikely Story of America's National Anthem. He spoke with The Sun Also Rises about the banner and about his research recently, and he makes a fair point about Yankee Doodle. A. It's the oldest patriotic song we still sing today. I'm sure they still teach it in schools across this great land of ours. B. It emerged as a super popular song during the Revolution, which I believe is the birth of our nation and our democracy. So... You know, Yankee Doodle, to me, is the only better choice. But there's one big hang-up about Yankee Doodle. The problem is, of course, nobody takes that song seriously. So Yankee Doodle has merit. It was the most popular musical emblem during America's revolutionary period, which was far more definitive for U.S. history than was the War of 1812, which is when the Star-Spangled Banner was written. So Yankee Doodle remained in the conversation about a national anthem for more than 100 years. But if you think about something like an American Olympic athlete just about to push the limits of the human body, just about to showcase his life's work to the world, and if you think about him standing there trying to get into the right frame of mind for all of that while this blares in the background then I think it's easy to see that Mr. Ferris is exactly right. Yankee Doodle can't really be taken seriously. It's jaunty and kind of bouncy melody, and its whimsical lyrics really make it lack what the world's most powerful nation needs in an anthem. And there were several other songs that were considered for the U.S.'s anthem, too. Then you have Hail Columbia, which was written as an instrumental first by an American 
And then they added lyrics by another American in 1798. This is significant. The nationality of the writers of Hail Columbia really gave it an advantage over the Star-Spangled Banner. Because the banner's lyrics were written by an American, Francis Scott Key, which we'll get into more about in a moment. But the banner's music was written by a British man. His name was John Stafford Smith, and he wrote it as the melody of a song called To Anacron in Heaven, which celebrated the activities of a gentleman's club in London. It was a club of dining and drinking and music. The original words to John Stafford Smith's song were even indelicate. So those were a couple of significant strikes against the Star-Spangled Banner. And all of that made many Americans lean for quite some time more toward Hail Columbia. Through the 1800s, Hail Columbia was, the, was neck and neck with the Star-Spangled Banner for anthem status, unofficial anthem status, because two Americans wrote it as opposed to Key's hybrid with the English melody and the American word. So there were some real strengths that Hail Columbia had over the banner. But this song also had a big problem. Hail Columbia, fatally flawed. People don't like it. <laughs> yes, people just, they don't like the melody. They're just not inspired. Ferris sometimes discusses his research in a captivating presentation that combines storytelling with his musical performances. And he says that he knows firsthand that it is difficult to get audiences excited about Hail Columbia. I've sung it for audiences, and I've said, come on, you know, show me hands. Should this replace the Star-Spangled Banner? Not one person has ever said yes. And I used to do a slower version, and I figured, oh, let me pep it up a little bit. Nope. Hail Columbia. Nope. Nobody digs it. Then another contender for the anthem for quite some time was a song called My Country Tis of Thee. My country tis of thee, sweet This is a beautiful song with poignant and memorable lyrics, but the music made the idea of using it as America's anthem deeply problematic for one simple reason. It's the melody of the English national anthem, so that was never really going to fly. And then one final contender that was in the mix as a possible national anthem for the U.S. was called Columbia the Gem of the Ocean. And the name Columbia, by the way, was a poetic term for the Americas that derived from the name Christopher Columbus. And it also signified a female figure that sort of personified America. So this was a popular nickname for the country through the 1800s especially. And that's why it pops up in these patriotic songs from that time. And then the fifth candidate to emerge before the Civil War was Columbia, the Gem of the Ocean, also lifted from an English tune uh, given American lyrics. Good song. People like it. And people, a lot of people sing along and they remember it. But this one also had a major mark against it. It just came a little too late 
the banner was pretty established. And in fact, the lyrics of Columbia, The Gem of the Ocean, pay homage to the banner. Um, born in the red, white, and blue, the home of the brave and the free. So I think that song illustrates the long shadow that the banner cast over patriotic music. So there were several logical choices for a U.S. anthem. And in some ways, the Star-Spangled Banner was not the best pick. Nobody really ever tells me they love the song for the song. (laughs) Americans love to complain, right? Can't sing it, can't remember the words to the first verse. It celebrates militarism, which I disagree with. And it's from the War of 1812, not exactly our most prominent war. The War of 1812 was fought between the U.S. and England, starting in its eponymous year and lasting until 1815. And Mr. Ferris is right that it isn't considered to be nearly on the same level of prominence as the Revolutionary War that ended 30 years before the War of 1812 broke out. But nevertheless, the War of 1812 was a significant conflict, and it was the one from which the Star-Spangled Banner was born. It's a great story. So, the War of 1812, it was the Second Revolution. England is coming back to take revenge on the First Revolution. A few months into the conflict, the British used a massive naval squadron to blockade the American coast. Many in the U.S. felt that the new nation's commercial freedom was at stake, and possibly its sovereignty, too. And for the first couple of years, British forces were also engaged in the Napoleonic Wars in Europe. But after Napoleon abdicated in April of 1814, the British were able to turn all of their attention on America. The war in Europe is over with Napoleon, and they're setting all their gun sights on us, specifically Baltimore. So what they do is they send the fleet, the most powerful navy in the world, to the Chesapeake Bay, It was on August 17th of 1814 that they arrived, and a huge British fleet dropped anchor in the Chesapeake Bay, just 35 miles from America's capital. They came ashore and began to advance on Washington. President Madison ended up leaving the White House to join some American militiamen who were marching to confront the British. So Dolly Madison was left in the White House, and she only agreed to flee when the sound of British cannons was audible outside the White House. And she made sure to pack up a copy of the Declaration of Independence and also the famous Gilbert Stuart portrait of George Washington before she would go. And then within a couple of hours of her departure, the British arrived at the White House. And in late August 1814, they burned down the White House, Congress, and other public buildings. Much of the capital was ablaze or smoldering in ashes. So this was a deep humiliation for the United States. But then the British troops began to retreat back to their ships. So as the troops flee from Washington, it's a disorderly retreat in places. And some of the troops are marauding in upper Marlboro, Maryland, just east of D.C., And some of them are captured by local townspeople and put in jail. One of these British soldiers broke out and made it back to his ship, and he reported what had happened. One of the prisoners breaks out, goes back to his ship, and he says, hey, they arrested us up in Upper Marlboro. 
So the British sent a detachment of soldiers. They arrest the most prominent citizen of Upper Marlboro, that is Dr. William Beans. And they bring Beans aboard the main flagship of the British fleet, and they plan to hang him in Halifax. But some Americans heard about this plan, and they asked President Madison to intervene. They appeal to President Madison, and he dispatches John Skinner, who is a agent for prisoner release, and Francis Scott Key, a young lawyer who is practicing in Georgetown. Mr. Ferris, at this point in the story, emphasized just how perilous this task would have been for Skinner and Francis Scott Key. Think about this image. They get on a boat, a little boat, and they sail out to the biggest warship in the world to talk about Dr. Beans. Think about that image. Why they weren't blown out of the water is incredible. No one knew what would happen. But the British, led by Vice Admiral Alexander Cochrane, ended up welcoming the two aboard. They're actually invited on board, and they're wined and dined. The uh, general, the admiral, excuse me, Cockburn says, all right, y'all can go, all three of you. But you heard our plans to attack Baltimore, and you have to wait till after the battle. And that's why Key, Skinner, and Beans were on uh, the other side of enemy lines. They were behind enemy lines during this battle. So Francis Scott Key and Skinner, along with Dr. Beans, whose life they had just saved, were held guard on a ship for many days while the British planned and then carried out this attack on Baltimore. And the British, during the attack, fired anywhere from 1,500 to 1,800 terrifying Congrev rockets. These whistled through the air and exploded overhead, raining shrapnel down on the people and buildings below. This was from September 13th into the 14th of the year 1814. And all the three Americans could do was watch from afar and wonder if America would survive. And England really had it in for Baltimore. They were not going to go easy on Baltimore like they did on Washington. They were going to steal everything they could and pillage the entire city. So it was a big deal. Uh, Key was not from Baltimore. He was from Frederick, but he had family that lived there. And of course, as a proud Marylander, that would have been a brutal humiliation. Throughout the night, the two sides unleashed everything they had against each other. Francis Scott Key wrote about what it looked like from the boat where he was being held. He wrote, quote, Fort McHenry opened the full force of all her batteries upon the British as they repassed, and the fleet, responding with entire broadsides, made an explosion so terrific that it seemed as though Mother Earth had opened and was vomiting shot and shell in a sheet of fire and brimstone. The heavens aglow were a seething sea of flame. And whenever one of the British rockets would explode near the U.S. storm flag that hung over Fort McHenry, Key would catch a glimpse of it, and they could see that it was still there. America was still holding on. This, of course, is what inspired some of Key's most poignant lines in the Star-Spangled Banner. And Mr. Ferris says the accusations that many make about those lines being militaristic and warmongering are entirely unfounded. You know, this whole idea about 
the song being militant with the rocket's red glare and the bombs bursting in air. That's a qualified statement. They gave proof through the night that the flag was still there, so he knew that the fort was still under American control. There's no spotlights, right? So those explosions produced the only light that he and the other two temporary prisoners could see by during that long and violent night. But then the sun rose at 5.51 that morning, and the bombardment stopped. And Key watched as the Americans at Fort McHenry hoisted a 42-foot by 30-foot garrison flag to show that they were victorious. And Key wrote about what he felt when he saw that mammoth American flag ascend over the fort. He wrote, quote, I hope I shall never cease to feel the warmest gratitude when I think of this most merciful deliverance. It seems to have given me a higher idea of the forbearance, long-suffering, and tender mercy of God than I had ever before conceived. So it was those sentiments and that groundswell of profound gratitude that inspired Francis Scott Key to write the magnificent lyrics to what became known as the Star-Spangled Banner. And he set them to that poignant and just stunning melody that had been written by John Stafford Smith all those years before. And the combination yields an anthem that is radiant beyond words. It wasn't until many decades after that fateful night in Baltimore that the Star-Spangled Banner actually became America's anthem in an official capacity. eventually beat out those other candidates and became the official sonic embodiment of America's nationhood. And it's really an anthem that is head and shoulders above those of so many other nations. I've spent quite a lot of time listening to the various national anthems in recent months, and there are a handful of very powerful and beautiful ones, but there are also so many that are just somewhat lackluster. And Mr. Ferris explained that sometimes that is the result of politics. A lot of anthems are new, and they're, you know not super inspiring. They're written by the friend of the dictator. They praise the country and generic elements of it. I mean, this was born of a specific historic event. So that may be at the heart of why the banner is so extraordinary, just that it was born of a specific historical event. And maybe this anthem's exceptionalism is also part of the way the United States was blessed 
blessed just so abundantly. We'll touch on that a little bit more in a moment. But first, there are a couple of other details about the Star-Spangled Banner that are, I think, fascinating and uh, significant. First is one of the greatest ironies in history, which centers on the anthems of the two sides in the American Civil War. Now, the irony, of course, is that the anthem of the Union, written by a slave-owning Southerner, the anthem of the Confederacy, written by an anti-slavery Northerner, who, when he found out what happened to Dixie, disavowed any association with the song. And that, to me, is one of, if not the greatest ironies in U.S. history. Another interesting tidbit is that many of you listeners who are here in the U.S. very likely have a piece of the Star-Spangled Banner with you right now. Congress adopted In God We Trust as as an official motto. This was in 1956, during the Cold War, and it was largely to show the atheistic communists that America was a God-fearing nation. And that line is from the fourth verse of the Star-Spangled Banner. Which is also on our money. So if you're walking around and you have money on you, you're carrying a little piece of the anthem with you everywhere you go. Mr. Ferris also makes what I think is a very compelling case that this fourth verse should be the one that we sing rather than the first verse. They used to sing four verses, but now our attention spans are unable to suffer through such torture. And so we sing the first verse, which is bizarre, because why? It ends in an unresolved question. It is weird to be like, well, say that this starts like a wave with a land of fear over the brain. Question mark. Okay, play ball. <laughs> well, the second verse reconciles and says, yes, the flag was still there. Third verse kind of takes a swipe or two at England. If you're going to sing one verse, it should be the fourth. It's self-contained. It's nice. It's got a prayer for the future of the country. And it also has the line, this be our, thus be our motto, in God is our trust, later uh, paraphrase, to become one of our two mottos. First motto, e pluribus unum, the second, in God we trust. Also notable is that the line, Star-Spangled Banner, comes from Shakespearean influence. In A Midsummer Night's Dream, Shakespeare wrote of spangled starlight sheen. And then in The Taming of the Shrew, he wrote, quote, What stars do spangle heaven with such beauty? So Britain gave America more than just the melody of the Star-Spangled Banner. It also gave us the titular line there. A moment ago, we mentioned that this astounding anthem could be one small but not insignificant aspect of the way God blessed America. 
And if you'd like to understand the full picture of just how bountifully and abundantly this nation has been blessed and why it was given so much, I would encourage you to order a free copy of Mr. Herbert W. Armstrong's book, The United States and Britain in Prophecy. We'll include a link in the show notes to this episode to that book, which we send out at no charge. So please check that out. And we'll also include a link to Mark Ferris's excellent and insightful book, Star-Spangled Banner, The Unlikely Story of America's National Anthem. This has been a very well-received book, and there's so much in there that we were not able to cover on the show today. And it's just, you know, a very enjoyable and educational read. So your personal library will be richer for that edition. If you have any questions or comments about this episode of The Sun Also Rises, please send those to tsar at kpcg.fm. We always love hearing from you. Or you can also connect with us on Twitter at tsar underscore radio show. We'd like to thank Jesse Hester for recording assistance with this episode and Mr. Mark Ferris for sharing his time with us. And we'll leave you today with a quote from George Templeton Strong. In this, he's addressing the fact that the banner is difficult to sing. You know, it has a range of 19 semitones, which makes it a big challenge for many singers. But George Templeton Strong says that doesn't detract from the splendor of this truly exceptional anthem. He wrote, A lot of loafers are just going past, screaming out the star-spangled banner at the top of their lungs and in all sorts of diabolical discords, but it sounds gloriously. No matter how it's mangled, it's a glorious thing altogether. Words and music. Music